Jesus said, And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. For years, I used to watch the, uh, the show with Mike Rowe, I think is the name of the host, Dirty Jobs. It's still going, right? I don't think I've watched it in at least 15 years. It must have been running for 20 years or something. It turns out there are a lot of dirty and dangerous and difficult jobs in the world to cover. And there are many hard jobs in the world, but I think that of them all, Rescue Diver is in a category of its own. You may remember the story from about five years ago of that group of young Thai men, a, a soccer team and their coach, who got trapped in a cave almost a mile from the cave entrance. There were these heavy rains, and it flooded the cave, so they couldn't get back out. They were found by a team of volunteer divers, people who, this was not even their job, a mix of international expats and Thai Navy special forces, one of whom lost his life in the rescue process. And to reach that stranded team, they had to go through that cave, through the flooded parts, through places where it was too narrow even to carry a scuba tank with you. And then they had to do the same thing in reverse, but pulling someone else along with them on a rope. Think about the incredible amount of courage it must have taken to be one of those rescuers. To start in a place of safety and warmth and comfort, and to dive into the water knowing you were going into danger to rescue people from, frankly, their own terrible idea. But think of the courage it took to be rescued as well. To start in a cave where, granted, you'd been trapped for nine days, but where you were warm and dry, and to dive into the water, into that dark and dangerous place, and to follow. There's one kind of courage in taking the risk of self-sacrifice, of doing something purely for someone else. But there's another kind of courage in that leap of faith to follow the one who's rescuing you, because it usually means going through something that's less pleasant than where you are right then and hanging on for dear life. If you were here last Sunday at coffee hour, you may uh, remember that we gave some of our younger members St. John's bingo cards to go around and ask questions of some of the adults. One of the questions that one of the kids asked me was, what's your favorite Bible verse? Right on their card. And as my life flashed before me, and I desperately willed myself to remember a single verse of the Bible so I could give an answer, the words John 3.16 flashed into my mind. And how could they not? If you've ever watched a football game, or seen a bumper sticker, or even sometimes been on the beach and seen a plane trailing one of those banners behind it, you may well have seen John 3.16 cited as the go-to verse in the Bible um, that someone who wants to quote a verse might share. John 3.16, somebody's poster says, in the stands at the game. And everybody watching takes out their Bible that's on the coffee table and flips it open and finds the words, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. I didn't say John 3.16, by the way. I said 1 John 4.7, which is a little different, and you can look it up later if you'd like. But you can understand why John 3.16 has become a go-to verse for folks who like to cite Bible verses on their bumper stickers and their airplane banners. If it stands on its own, it sums up one very common understanding of what this is all about. One typical idea of what's good news about Christianity. 
You might hear variations on this idea referred to with slightly different terms, things like the ransom theory and things like penal substitutionary atonement. But it's the, it's the idea that was in the hymn that we just sang, that Jesus purchased something for us on Calvary's tree, right? The almost transactional idea that our sin, the sin of human beings, had left us in debt to God, and God paid the price. Or that we were liable to some kind of punishment, and Jesus took the punishment in our place. God would have been perfectly entitled, the thinking goes, to destroy the world, to foreclose on our account, or to punish us as we deserved. But instead, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. And you can almost hear the economic language in those words. God gave his son so that we could have eternal life as a kind of payment. And this um, is actually the root of the word redemption. If any of our Latin scholars were in the room, they could tell you that redemption just means buying back. Redemption is being purchased back, being ransomed in a sense. And that is one way to understand this verse, John 3.16. It's part of our Christian culture and tradition, part of the hymns that we sing. But it doesn't do very much for me to help me understand the other 16 verses around it. Jesus is talking about all sorts of different things in those verses, and I want to suggest a slightly different understanding of where Jesus is coming from here. Not so much the ransom theory or the penal substitutionary theory, but the rescue diver theory of the atonement. What strikes me about this passage is that Jesus is not really talking about a transaction, a payment for a price. He spends most of it talking about a journey or travel from one place to another. You must be born from above, Jesus says, and Nicodemus misunderstands. He misinterprets Jesus from above as meaning again, and indeed they're the same word in Greek. And he asks, can anyone enter a second time into the womb? But Jesus is talking about a different kind of new birth, from a different kind of watery place, the new birth, perhaps, of baptism by water and the Holy Spirit. And his emphasis really is on the four above. This birth doesn't come from human beings, but it's a gift from God. And so Jesus tries to get the point of that travel and distance across again. The wind blows where it chooses, he says, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes to. The wind, the spirit, travels an enormous journey across the face of the earth and blows where it will. And Nicodemus is baffled. How can these things be? So Jesus says to him, again talking about a journey through space, but in a little more concrete way, no one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. That's Jesus. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, which is maybe a story for another time, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world, and so on. Each of these is a little different way of describing what's happening in Jesus' own life on earth. It's Jesus who was born from above. Jesus who descended from heaven. It's Jesus who's like the wind, and you, Nicodemus, don't understand where he came from or where he's going. He descended from heaven, and he will ascend again. And as he says in another verse, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Again and again, Jesus emphasizes this motion, this sense of travel, of journey, 
from above to below, from here to there, ascending and descending and being lifted up. For John, and for us, when we hear the words of the Gospel of John, this phrase, being lifted up, always means three things. It means when Jesus is lifted up on the cross on Good Friday and he dies, but it also always means when he is lifted up from the grave on Easter Sunday. And it also means when he's lifted up from the earth on Ascension Day and ascends into heaven. It's the story of Jesus' whole travel from heaven to earth, from earth to the grave, from the grave to earth, from earth back to heaven. And the strangest part is that last verse, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. It's as if Jesus is doing his journey from heaven to earth to the grave to earth, and then bringing us back with him on the way up. And that's the most remarkable thing to me, because when you read it in its context, Jesus' life and death look less like a transaction, less like a purchase, and more like a rescue mission. Jesus comes down from heaven not only to pay the price for our redemption or bear a punishment for our wrongdoing, but to save us, to actually save us from the dark, damp caves in which we're trapped. He dives down into the waters of the worlds and swims toward us and brings a rope to try to drag us back into heaven with him. And he gives us a choice, not the choice of whether to believe or not in an intellectual sense, but the choice to trust, the choice to trust as Abraham had to trust, to leave behind his country and his father's house, to leave a place he was relatively comfortable and follow God where he was leading him, to trust as those Thai soccer players had to trust, to hold onto the rope and follow, to dive down into the water you'd spent the last week trying to escape, to make that leap of faith, hoping that you might find something better on the other side. Jesus is somewhere on a journey from heaven to earth and back again, on a mission to save each one of us, to heal us, to rescue us from whatever is afflicting us, to bring us out of whatever darkness we're living in. And that's not just a story about our lives, about eternal life after our deaths. It's an invitation into the eternal life of heaven that we can already occupy on earth. So where are you in this story this morning? Are you hiding somewhere in the cave, convinced that things really aren't so bad? Are you somewhere in the water, cold and wet and afraid you'll never make it out? Are you clinging to the rope, trusting that God will bring you through it all? Are you somewhere on the other side, finally breathing fresh air again? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.